Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Pasadena nuts. Mm-hmm. I love. Oh, so you love Pasadena? I just we love Pasadena. I, it's its own. It's just like Evanston. I mean, basically, you go where you feel comfortable, and we're like, Pasadena is like Evanston. Let's live here. I mean, it's just so okay. funny. Um, Do you know yeah. who Erica Jane is? No. She's on The Real Housewives. She lives in Pasadena in like an enormous mansion. Is there like a whole there's a section. section of town? Yeah. Uh-huh. So so there's a section of Pasadena. South Pasadena is is really like Evanston. But South Pasadena is so expensive because the schools are good. So that's where everybody moves who has kids. So we don't live there. We live in regular Pasadena. and But there is a section of regular Pasadena, too, that's kind of in the hills. And it is crazy. Cray, 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 cray. So yeah, yeah. Pasadena is, is 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 like Evanston. Like we're in Evanston, like by the lake, there's huge mansions. And then there's also not so huge apartment complexes. And that's where we live. So and that's where you are. Yeah. Well, I should have known, you know, they had this enormous, I mean, she, it, it's one of these houses that's so big that she has like a chapel inside, you know, with stained glass and a chair. And her, she didn't, when the show started she didn't work and he's a lawyer and i'm like hmm what's wrong with this picture i mean even top-notch lawyers i mean the lawyers who make that kind of money are like judge judy right not you know not your average lawyer yeah well so then like five (laughs) years later uh he the guy is indicted for taking money from settlements that he would earn settlements for his um patient no not his patients his clients yeah and then just take the money sure sure and he went to jail uh, no he's not in jail uh, he's probably having to pay back and like probably yeah i think he's just in the midst of i think he declared bankruptcy of, of course. course of course and they still he's live in that bad. house so they still and, live in that uh, house you know they well she filed for bank i mean she filed for divorce oh. and the thinking was that that was an arrangement between them to protect Assets. Other assets. Oh my mm-hmm. God, I mean, people are just such scumbags. Honestly. People are scumbags. People that is that is scuzzy scumbags. It's so true. I um I agree. Yesterday, speaking of scuzzy scumbags, I went to and this is not really, but I went to <laughs> the um. So first of all, I, I got a cold, and I was like, "What?" And everyone says colds are hugely on the rise because people stopped wearing masks. So I still have my mask on, but people aren't. So things are starting to get transmitted again. But of course, I'm like, I have COVID, you know. But because, uh, but I had excessive sneezing, which isn't really one of the. It could be allergies, right? It could be allergies. And also, I'm a terrible housekeeper, so we have dust like seven inches thick on everything. So that could be it. Um, I'm exaggerating, but it's it's like my (laughs) fan has a lot of dust on it. I got to clean the fan. So, But anyway, we went to, and this is America, man. We went to the outlet mall, my friend Gisa and I yesterday, before it opened, because we didn't want a lot of people. But man, Americana, if you want to see Americana... Go to an, a huge, 
the huge outlet mall at, you know, an hour before it opens, you see some interesting stuff. <laughs> you, see some, you see some interesting people, some interesting, you know, and I, my friend wanted to go and I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I wasn't feeling great. So I'm like, not feeling great. It's a hundred degrees right now here. Mm-hmm. And we're at the outlet mall. That is America right there. That right there. Dude, that, that's, that reminds me of my version of that growing up was something called the Roseville auction. And it was, is essentially a, what is a flea market? Is a flea yeah. market just everybody gets a little booth and sells their crap? Correct. Yeah. Okay. But in this case, it was some things that were new, but a lot of just like a tarp covered with, yes. you know, machine parts and yes, guys having serious conversations about how much they're going to pay for this ball bearing or whatever that was. And as you know, it's just funny how as a kid, you, you just have a perception of like, this is just how e- this everybody has a Roseville auction. And if my adult eyes, I look back and I think there must have been meth deals yes. going on in that place. Yes. There was some shady ass shit going on. But all I could think was like, they have a uh, popcorn or right. like, right. get a Slurpee or something. Like right. That. And, and, you know, I, I, the other thing is just, you know, it, it just, yeah, it's just all about the deals and consumerism. And, you know, there are people waiting in line to get into, um, two stores, um, Tory Birch. I know nothing about Tory Birch. Uh-huh. Um, and Crocs. For some reason, there was oh, a no, line. Not the Crocs. The Crocs store was, uh, we were like, what? But I guess people, it, they become hip now with like hip hop entertainers. This sounds crazy, but I was researching it because I was like, what is going on? So hip hop stars and like, um, just fashionistas wear Crocs now, bright colored Crocs, and they put little sticky things. They put little plugs okay, in their Crocs. They made it cool. Yeah. yeah, like bright yellow Crocs with like evening gowns. I I, I don't understand. Dude, dude, okay, here's here's a question I have for you. So, um, basically, for the last several years, ever since the '80s sure. style became popular again. I haven't liked, well, for it, maybe five years ago was sort of the 90s, and now it feels like we're fully into the 80s. Yes, with exactly. The thing. Yeah. Um, I haven't liked what's popular in fashion for quite quite some time. And I have a few things about it. One is like, okay, this means I'm old because this. I remember my mother saying to me um, in the, I guess maybe it was like the 80s or maybe it was the nineties that all the sixties stuff came back. And she said, I thought it was ugly then. I think it's ugly now. And that's how I feel about this nineties and eighties stuff. Like it's all so unappealing. I hate pastel colors. I hate earth tones and I hate yes. high-waisted acid oh. wash jeans with wide legs. Yes. I mean, what is going? Okay, so <sighs> so I am like pick up pick a style like either high-waisted and 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 bootleg. You know, it's so funny because um, my friend Jesus like. What happened to bootleg? Like bootleg was my favorite style. What happened to it? I'm like, Gisa, it's over. It's over. She's like, no, no, high waisted bootleg. I'm like, Gisa, this is not. It'll, it'll be back. I mean, it's just coming it back. Years, Gisa. It'll that's be back. not hap- That's not happening. But high waisted wide leg. What? I just look like a literally like a crazy- one one person looks good in that type of clothing, and it's like, yeah, but they would look good in absolutely anything right? they wear. I- so my question to you is more about how. Um, Okay, 
my example of this is remember when booty boots came out the you know it's like it's not a boot and it's not a shoe yes. it's the ankle yes when those came out I thought that is hands down the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life I would never wear those in a million years I seriously and then they stuck around yes. for quite some time yes. and by the end of it I was like those are kind of cute yes and so I have this thing that I think that my sense of style is basically just like people tell me what is looks good and then eventually I believe it. Well, too. I think that eventually like anything in psychology, right? It's around if you're exposed to it enough, you maybe have you know what you have you have Stockholm syndrome of the booties of fashion. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I just if you can't beat them, you might as well join them or like maybe we're just exposed to it. So like I have the same thing with um um, like my, because my niece is sort of the fashionista, she's turning 17 in a couple of weeks and I'm like, oh, okay. She bought these, you know, everyone's into Yeezy shoes, right? That uh -huh. are like a bajillion, so ugly, so so ugly. ugly. like big clomper kind of, she has shoes like that. And I'm like, no, no, I will never like these. And then, but because my niece is 17 like five ten or whatever she, I don't know what she is. Really gorgeous, gorgeous long legs. The Yeezys yeah. don't look so bad, but you're right. They anything would look good on her. You stick a, a freaking you know bed sheet, a stained bed sheet on her, and she could make it look right. Good, you know? Right. Ye Yeezys are a great example. I mean, just all of Kanye's clothing line. Oh. I the not one thing that's attractive to me. He he uses like the ugliest colors, the most bland. And of course, he puts it on beautiful people, so it looks great. I, I haven't come around at all on on that stuff, but I'm sure it's just a matter of time before I'm like, oh yeah, that looks really cute. Probably right before it goes out of. Style. Well, that's the other thing. It's like I now I'm just behind. I'm behind. So like things that are yeah that were cute a while ago. Now I'm I'm like oh that's kind of cute. So I think Anna Wintour has it right, which is that she found a hairstyle a dress style and a jewelry style that's very flattering to her. And it's not that she doesn't stay current, but she finds the silhouettes mm. that most closely resemble, you know, the thing that's basically her uniform. And actually this idea of a uniform, which was introduced to me by Michael Kors on Project uh -huh. Runway all those years ago when he was like, I wear jeans and this blazer and this white t-shirt because I don't want to think about what I'm wearing. I want to get up and I, you know, and it, but it does look pulled together. It always looks clean. It always looks fresh. And I thought, yeah, that's what I yeah. need. I need like a uniform of like something that's beautiful and flattering yes. but that I never have to decide what I'm going to wear. Yes. So I I had, had a friend um, named John in New York City and I've lost touch with him. He was like a real eccentric and he he did that. He found something. It was Banana Republic something, uh, jeans, a certain type of jean, a certain type of Canadian army boot that he loved, t-shirt and a and a sweater, like a cardigan. He bought $10,000 worth of that one look. And that's all he wore for years. And the guy looked great. But he went to Banana Republic and was like, time. I have $10,000. Please make it so that I have this number of jeans, this number of shirts, and this number of cardigans. And they did it. And the guy was set for, I don't know, 10 years. So that's kind oh of the Oh my God, John, I, I, I want to I, I do that. Yeah. I really want to do that. Because you know the feeling when you find something that looks good on you. Oh my God. And you're like, I want to own every single 
single item of this that ever existed. Like I just recently discovered these kind of pants that have pockets, but then they also have a smaller zippered pocket Ooh. like within it, which is just perfect if you want to carry around your Advil yes. like I like to do. So now I want to buy those in every color. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've never been a trend person. I've never been like ex- uh, it's too much energy. Well, you don't like you shopping. You're not a shopper. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I feel yeah, like, I, I feel like, you know, you, you don't, yeah, that's not you your. You do the trends. You do the sunglasses and the jewelry. I do. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little behind, but I do do it, but I definitely do it once it gets to Target. And by the time right, it gets right, to Target, right. it's over. So I do, I do a semi okay job um, following them, and I do like. I mean, color is just my jam. Like I love color, um, even though I wear a lot of black. I do have. I'm looking in my closet right now because that's where I am, and I love color. I just do. I think color. Like I'm an. What's her name? Apple Iris Apple. Is that her name? Oh yes, yes. Yeah. That's I love my. Her. She's like my fashion. I like. That's who I aspire to be someday. Um, and I, when I, my new plan is when I make it somehow as a writer and don't have to audition anymore, like someone's forcing me to audition. That's is so stupid, but here's my plan. So I, I, we make it as writers and I let my hair go gray. Right. So who cares? And then I just become Iris. That's like my, my yeah. dream. But so why, well, who, why, guess what? You don't need to wait to yeah, do that. I think you can do that right now. You can, you can go to a, Palm Springs vintage shop, get some, some Poochie, you need some Poochie prints, some big Poochie prints, some, some crisp collars. Yes. And you know, the other thing about your hair is, um, I, I haven't done this, but I've thought about it. At a certain point when you have a lot of gray, um, just, just dye your hair gray. I can do that. Yeah, you can just dye your hair. You have to get a really good colorist for it so it doesn't look weird. Yeah. Dye your hair gray and then you never have to worry about it coming in. Again. That's yeah. what I might do because I am just over dyeing my hair. I just feel like Think of it. Well, when my friend does it, it looks fine except then I have dye all the way around, okay, for like days. Like I look crazy, but then when I go to the salon, it's as we know it's $200. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Also, I'm sick of it. I'll 200, show- it's 400 here. Oh you have gosh. to get a good hair or 380 plus. You know, oh my God. Yeah. Right. That's like, you know, that's insane. So I just feel like it's time. I, I'm really close to being like, you know what? I'm embracing the gray and I'm, um, I'm just going to call it and, and, um, go from there and, uh, and we'll see what happens, but yeah, I'm we'll really close. Happens. You're going to look great. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to your Irish helpful face. Thank I you. think you're going to look awesome i mean you already do look awesome but, but I think you really have the you really have the what you need to have to pull that okay off. good good because <laughs> I, I i i don't want to look crazy and i also uh don't want to look haggardly like that's the big <laughs> Haggard. yeah Haggard is not what I'm going for. hey let me run this by you so listen i have i'm after writing that um screenplay uh, which thank you so much for your help it's really good um, I, hope you win. I will say this though i i should have done I'll, this is a, just a life lesson after i submitted it i went and i read ones that have won in previous years and i realized that all of the winners did something that i didn't do which is that they all made their 
movies have one they were all just one shot oh so that they could do a lot of dialogue oh you know so that they could really propel the story um and you know i thought of doing that and i thought it would be uninteresting well see you're not you're kind of a different kind of filmmaker like i think your film was like a western which is like it 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 it's more interesting to me than just a bunch of people sitting around talking, to be honest with you. I, 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 well, I like the one that won last year was three people in a coffee shop uh, where one person breaks up with one of them. And then by the end of the movie, the pr- broken up with person is dating the third person who's there. Okay. I mean, it wasn't bad. There was nothing wrong with it. It, it didn't okay. move me necessarily, but right. it's like, okay, this is great dialogue and it it's tight and whatever. And then I just went through, it's like every single one was one scene, one shot. And for people who don't know, my thing was like multiple settings, you know, but I, think I mean, it was, it was so all- cool. I, I think oh, it was special. You. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it was also a period piece, which I think is really cool. Like you really went above and, and it was beyond. Magical realism. Yes. I, I, I really am into that whole idea of magical realism. But anyway, the point is writing, it just the act of writing is itself inspirational. Like since Saturday, I've have like 50 new ideas for things, including projects that we're already working on. But what about this? What about writing a story, maybe a movie, maybe a play, maybe a television show where it's a matriarchy, Mm -hmm. but we never reference it. It's just a regular slice of life drama where everything is completely inverted. So, you know, so the opening scene is like the... Uh, mom comes home from work and the dad, you know, scatters around, scampers around trying to get everything cleaned up and ready. And she sits down in in the living room and she puts her feet up and everybody That's comes cool. in, you know, and you just never make mention of it. It's, so cool. it's just, it's just, and the whole experiment of it is let's just see all of the ways in which when we watch this as an audience, we, we want to say, oh, but that's not right. That's not how that happens. That's what the man would be doing. And just have it be all about that. Just yep. have it be all about you constantly having the experience in the audience of things seem- seeming off to you. Because- yes. I, you know, I'm trying to think of anything that's like that. And I don't, I don't, I've not had, oh, Handmaid's Tale is a little. Well, Handmaid's Tale is like that in the sense that even though it's this horribly repressed society, the story is all about the women. Right. But let's imagine the handmaid's tale where it's all the men who are the, you know, breeders and the women get to make all the decisions. Yeah. That's cool. I like it. I like it. I love the idea. And you know, it's so funny. I'm like flash forwarding in my head to like meetings with execs and they're like, this will never work. This will never, (laughs) that's what they always say about everything before, before things work is this will never work, you know? Absolutely. It doesn't work until you like put it into the universe. That's the whole thing about art. That's when it's, done right it's putting an idea i mean it's reflecting what's already happening but it's also putting an idea into the universe that the audience hasn't 
considered until you show it to them. Right. And then it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that could be something. Right. I mean, that's the viable whole, thing. That seems like the whole point of art, right? It's like, that could be something. And, and it is something. And you make something from nothing. I love this idea. So what got you thinking about that? Do you remember? Um, I've had an idea for a while. I had an idea to write something about the world's last matriarchy. Like we're, 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 um, what's the word anthropologists. And we're coming upon like a previously unknown community of people in some far flung corner yes. of the world. And what we run, what, what we discover is that they run their whole society in this matriarchal fashion, because even though there have been over eons matriarchies i don't have any idea how they ran (laughs) or my sense is like that they ran in this way that it kind of just worked it wasn't it wasn't how the patriarchy it wasn't toxic like the patriarchy at least that's how it sounds right i'd be kind of interested like what if it was toxic like well that's the thing like i i think that that look anything where there's one group kind of running the show it gets toxic. It's toxic. It's Basically. toxic eventually. Yeah. But it would be interesting to see what kind of toxic is a matriarch toxic versus yeah. a patriarch toxic. Yeah. And I bet it doesn't get as toxic and I bet it lasts, I bet it's cooler for a lot longer. The other thing that inspired it was that um, for, I'm doing, uh, I'm on this committee for something that's a DEI committee and we're having our first meeting tomorrow and DEI. Oh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. right. Okay. And so the, the people who are running the, um, group are sent us like homework to do in advance. And one of the things was a Ted talk. Well, two of them were Ted talks, um, two great Ted talks, but the first one that was inspirational was, um, a theater director who talked about how there's these two stories that are popular in our culture that are meant to really be just relatable across any division that we have in our population. And they are Hamlet and E.T. Okay. And she tells a story about taking her children to see E.T. when it came out in the movie theater. And she had, I don't know, something like a seven-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl. And she kind of recaps the story of E.T. And she talks to when they get to the end and the bad guys want to take E.T. away and the kids band together and they figure out a way to thwart the bad guys and get E.T. So she's having the experience of enjoying the movie herself, but she's really enjoying watching her kids enjoy it. And at the beginning, they're just like wrapped with attention and it starts to get towards the end and her son is still wrapped, but her daughter's starting to look worried. And by the end, her daughter is sobbing and she says, what's the matter? You know, E.T. went home and she said, why can't I save E.T.? Because in the story, it's just a group of, it's really just a group of boys and the girl, even though she's the youngest, she's just a cute appendage. She doesn't really have anything to do with it. And she was saying that her her daughter felt because I guess she's an adult now so they've talked about it her daughter felt like she was invested in this story yes and because it was centered around these kids you know she just assumed that the she just assumed that if she felt so invested in it that it would somehow be representative of her at the end 
And, you know, and then she just talked about the fact about in her early theater career, the number of people who said, you know, you just uh, she's British. And some guy said to her, there's three female theater directors right now. One is a lesbian. One is crazy. And one died or one committed suicide. So which one do you want to be? (gasps) Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it was a very simple idea. It was just about representation, right. but it was about the ways in which all, all, all of our completely unconscious um, expectations are for gender oh my gosh. representation. Yeah. So I just feel like, wow, I want to watch those. That's Today on the podcast, we're talking with Susan Bennett. Susan Bennett went to the theater school at DePaul University and then went on to have a very successful career on stage, as well as um, as a voiceover artist and a writer. And she's a kind, gentle, warm soul. Please enjoy our conversation with Susan Bennett. consummate setup of course because this is your oh well career. no I I mean but see there's my shoes <laughs> here's, oh, here's okay. like here's like some old shoe boxes no, but you, <laughs> there's okay. a bag of cat food back there. <laughs> you you sound amazing okay oh, well I do I'm I do have a good microphone so I'm I'm really glad too but because I forgot to set chrome as my default browser which you have to do oh yeah yeah and so I've been like <laughs> it's okay it happens it happens to a lot of people okay good i'm glad hi, hi. faces, faces. <laughs> susan Bennett, congratulations you survived theater school i did th- i did survive theater school i um i and i'm thrilled to talk about it i haven't talked about it really in years i realized that when you guys reached out to me I'm like wow i haven't even i mean it's not to say that it's not it's it hasn't been like a background player my whole my whole adult life but yeah so you were you uh i noticed on your facebook it says that you studied a constant rejection at the theater (laughs) school were you somebody who (laughs) left and never looked back um what what do you mean by never looked back i just mean sometimes when people leave the theater school it was so i mean we we've talked to quite a few people who um Never want to, never wanted to think about it again. Don't want to do this podcast Mm -hmm. because they don't want to relive it. That kind of thing. Oh, okay. I do understand. Um, You know, I guess I've been in both camps at various points in my life, you know, and I think that directly correlates with, uh, or used to correlate anyway, with like how, how well I thought I was doing. Right. Um, But I kind of feel like now as at the age that I am at the phase of life that I am is that I really am very grateful for th- for theater school because and particularly this theater school because um when I looked back on it and again I did this because you guys asked me to be on the podcast um when I looked back on it I thought you know none of the great things that have happened to me in my life would have happened to me if I hadn't chosen to go to theater school so uh, but that's not to say that there weren't emotional times or things that I feel badly about, even, you know, 20 some odd years on. Um, but those have mostly to do with me and the who I was as a person 
and who I have grown to be and who I wish I could have been for myself and for all these people that I know and love and loved when I was in theater school. So, um, but I feel like it gave me a great foundation, particularly, you know, given where I came from, which was like, you know, Southern girl. I grew up with in a, in a religious family and I grew up in New Orleans. So I kind of had that balancing out the religious family. Thing, yeah. Good. You know? Yeah. Right. I mean, so that's a good question, but I, and I, I'm sorry that people are like, Oh, I can't even look back on those years, but I'm, I'm glad to have, to be able to look back on them in this context because it made me realize like everything, I have that's really wonderful in my life or many things that are wonderful in my life stem from DePaul University wow. Theater School. Yeah. That's really, lo- that's, I mean, I don't think we've heard, we've heard people say, you know, like, I'm so grateful because I have a lot of things from them, but like mm-hmm. to hear that most of the, the beautiful things in your life stem from some, some way or shape or form from the theater school. I'm yeah. so curious about that. What does that mean? Well, for example, um, So what I remember and, you know, I just I just read this um, on Facebook, actually, is that David Avkali just passed away. And I, I, you know, I saw and I've seen people's reactions to him on Facebook and and reactions to his death. You know, may he rest in peace. He was my first year acting teacher. And um, and when I see people's response to him, like the friends that I have on Facebook, it just puts me in mind. I'm like, I wouldn't know that person. And I wouldn't know their, I wouldn't have these memories of them, which are directly tied to this one person, which are directly tied to one place. Um, so that's like one piece of it is like, I guess you could have infinite, it's, you could have infinite life experiences, but this one is mine. And the people that make it up and the theater experiences that I had in Chicago when I was first, you know, in theater school, you go and see a lot of plays. I mean, those were seminal things. Like I saw this um, uh, production of The Price, Arthur Miller's The Price, and I remember Peggy Roeder was in it. And um, uh, I want to say Greg Vink, not, not, mm, mm, mm. I don't think it was Greg Vinkler, but um, Peggy Roeder was in it. And I and it was at a theater in Skokie. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that experience for me was really seminal because it was the first time that I had seen a straight play in a theater. OK, like I had, you know, I had been to see like Cats when it came to the right. Banger Theater <laughs> in New Orleans. And uh, but I had never sat in like an intimate house with actors kind of right there and in front of me, Uh, people that I would come to whose work I would come to know in in, you know, a place that that became like this launching pad um, for so many ideas about theater. Like now, I mean, the improv idea about creation, I mean, that is huge in what we do. Chicago was kind of the third coast back then. It wasn't, you know, as linked into uh, New York and LA as it is now, or like Atlanta is now, or even New Orleans is now. Um, so yeah, like those things were foundational for me. I mean, 
uh, Chicago itself. Chicago is an amazing city. Nobody, I saw this thing on, I, I, I can't remember where I saw this. It was like, I wish I loved anything the way that people from Chicago say they love Chicago. Yes. <laughs> right? yeah. And it's true. It's true. Like it's a big city. It was accessible. It wasn't outrageously expensive then. Um, my room and I lived like in Lincoln's I lived in Lincoln Park and then I lived in Bucktown and I lived you know by Wrigley Field like all these things that that I look back on with such fondness even though I know in the moment I was like worried about how I was coming across and you know worried about like am I going to be able to remember remember my lines and this person I'm really in love with this person are they with me and you know all that kind of silliness which was which was part and parcel of every young person's life um so i mean there were times where you know like for i don't know did you guys go to school with uh dr bella did you have bella? yeah we it didn't can, have okay. her i didn't have her but yeah she was no, she was there either. and we were there are you or are you so you were before us that was one of my questions is that you yes i was before yes i think i was before you um so Yes, like so I had so I had Dr. Bella and I was a very repressed, very um rigid person when I entered the theater school. Naturally I thought I was very edgy, but really what I was was very rigid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can relate. This is um, for me. Well, yeah. <laughs> did it really so you understand? Yes. Right? Oh yes. yeah. Okay. So you- I, I thought I was cool. Really? I was in a fugue repressed state. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. So we've all been there. And maybe that's what the draw to theater school is. is like you have this, des- you, whatever it is that you need, it is, it, it is kind of based in this need to find out for yourself who you really are. And I get, that's the time of life, but it's definitely what theater school, at least for young, for undergrad folks was about. And so Dr. Bella's class was technique and uh you know doc- Dr. Bella was very <laughs> old person then and very uh understated person and um, oh my god very very serious person. And that for me was very very threatening because I was very supercilious and very on the surface about things and kind of had this edge that I was putting out in the world. And Dr. Bella was not impressed and had seen 4 million students like me. And she was trying to impart something that perhaps at even a certain point, she realized like this kid isn't ready to understand. Like when she would say like, if you'll feel it in your sex, put it there. And I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand like, Oh, I have memories in my body, in my organism that I can draw upon if I merely imagine that sensation there. It will go there. If I imagine that I'm excited and tense and upset, it will go there. If I imagine that I'm really relaxed and I'm, you know, in a sensual situation, then I can put it in my body and my body will communicate things that my face won't communicate that my you know that I intellectually can't communicate like I will just communicate those things I didn't get it. I didn't understand when did you get it when I got a C <laughs> I got a C in technique and believe me I was like I wanted to be edgy but I also want to get good grades I had been like a grade girl like I got good grades god damn it and um so I got that well you know what I think I came to understand that I didn't know what I was doing when I got the C but it wasn't until so 
the correction. I got the C. I realized like, I don't know what, I don't understand what the fuck is going on. And then I started acting. I got very lucky when I came out of school. I was in a production of uh, Les Liaisons Dangereux. And then I did a production of Uncle Vanya. And it was in those... It was in those situations where I was on stage with other people who were really skilled and wonderful actors that I, I started to understand, like it was through observation. It was through kind of understanding like why, how are they able to create this over and over and over again? And um, I think honestly, probably maybe four or five years out of school, I started to kind of understand like, oh, I think now I get, because she would say things like, you're in the desert, it's very hot, um, you're thirsty, you've been out there a long time, and the phone rings. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? I'm in the desert. Phone can't ring the desert instead of, <laughs> oh, I'm hot. Like, you are you should be able to imaginatively okay. switch between these states, right? Couldn't First be. of all, I, I have to just say, you know, your impressions are I mean, spot on. I, I should be fully channeling. <laughs> channel. It's not even impressions. You're channeling. And I, I, I shouldn't be surprised for all the work you do it's with your indelible. body and your <laughs> Well, your body and your voice, you clearly, you know what you're doing. But when you say that stuff about like it took you four or five years i don't think i still know that <laughs> i mean I, i'm telling you right now like when i get a tv side uh -huh. i'm like i forget about my body immediately mm -hmm. so you you i'm like well this in, is your, fascinating in, your defense, in your defense jen i don't think that's a different thing i think like oh. you know that is like okay. i just am who i am in my neutral state and i'm comfortable with that and then i can just allow the viewer to kind of i'm not good at television like believe me i would go in and be like <laughs> so i had this i had this television i had this television job i had gotten the job like somehow i had said the line correctly in the audition and they gave me the job and it was for this, I can't, I think it was black box, maybe. No, it was for, it was for, I can't remember the television show, but I was working in a uh, grocery store and I, and this kid has this meltdown on the floor of the grocery store. And I had a line, which was something like, can you take it outside? Uh, and I was like, can you take it outside? And the director of so the director was like cut stop uh that was great everyone great job um you you uh, he pointed at me he's like take it all the way down <laughs> and i said oh okay of course yes yes of course and um so we rolling again and i can you take it outside <laughs> and and He's like, listen, listen, you just, you know, this is the director of an episode of television. And I'm literally like one little ancillary character with one line. And he comes over and he's like, oh, yeah, so this is upsetting. This is upsetting. Oh. This kid is, you know. Oh, happy. the kid is upsetting. Oh. No, no, like for me. Yes, exactly. Oh. So the kid, like, like he's trying to give me my motivation. And I literally am just a person saying, can you take it outside? Right, right. <laughs> So that's to right. see my all my kinesthetic awareness. Sure, work. sure. Don't you don't like if anything like you need you need to rely only on that uh, for television. In my opinion, like you need to just be like, I'm in. I'm literally right here, and someone's doing something upsetting next to me. Can you take it outside? 
That's it. Yeah. <laughs> See if I had done that. Right. <laughs> if I had done that. Well, did you ever get there? Did you get there? No. No. Oh. In fact, in fact, at one point he just said, just say the line. <laughs> So in case anyone's ever feeling like really embarrassed. Oh, that's fantastic. About, <laughs> well, you know how it is. If you're feeling embarrassed about your experience on a television show, just know like some of us have been there and kind oh, of. Oh, I've been yeah, there. Yeah. And I hear yeah. stories about that all the time. People. And it's a, it's a thing about people trained to do theater. Um, you mm-hmm. know, good, bad, or indifferent. We're trained to sell it to the back row and then to, sure. to go all the way in the opposite direction. In fact, exactly. the small acting thing is probably something that had you done it in theater school, you know, mm-hmm. people would have had to really work with you to get out of that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost true. impossible. The, 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 um, the, the, the range of ways you're expected to, to behave <laughs> yes. at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So uh, I just looked up some of the shows you did. Um, Mm -hmm. You did The Women and Romeo Mm -hmm. and Juliet. I don't think I got to see Romeo and Juliet. Who did you play in that? I played the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. Yes, I thought so. Let's hear about it. Was it great? Was it great fun? Um, it was great fun. I that was such an exciting experience for me because uh, that was my first like lead like lead main stage role like that was like a, f- a first for me and Christina Dare directed it and it had a really wonderful cast it had Karen Mould who is now bitch of uh you know bitch fame who is an amazing was an amazing actress and just an amazing presence you know she played Juliet and then Leonard Roberts he was Romeo and um we had we had really good chemistry and I remember the audition process for it and I remember it was a big deal for me, too, because I'm not very facile with Shakespeare. I always felt um, intimidated by it. And that would come through with this, like, I don't even know why this is important anymore. I mean, you know, this right. this very dismissive sort of attitude toward it, which was like, oh, you you just really have to embody that your yourself and speak in heightened language. And that was very intimidating. So it was kind of like, oh, my gosh, I somehow cracked this Shakespeare nut and somebody saw it and I got a role. And and it's a and it and we did um, uh, it was, you know, set it was set in the Jewish and Palestinian conflict. So it was like kind of this. Yeah, it was like, yeah. So um, I remember this. I'm glad that you asked me about this because I was literally thinking about this yesterday as as I was taking my daily walk and thinking about like, gosh, I wonder if they'll ask me what shows I did. And I haven't thought through that kind of stuff in years. But um, I remember that was the first time. And this was I remember this in it was we were in tech and no, I think we had come through tech and we were just doing the first run through after tech. And there were some uh, faculty members who were there. I remember looking at and um, like John Jenkins's glasses, <laughs> like I could see his glasses and his head shape, you know, and Christine was out there. Uh, Trudy Kessler might have been there. Um a couple, you know, a couple of pe- people from the theater school were there, and we did the scene where uh, Juliet tells the nurse, like for the first time, that she's like 
kind of fallen in love with someone. And, you know, and I talk about her like, oh, she was a little girl. And I remember, oh, she did this funny thing. She fell down and she hit her head and she's and she stinted and she went, hi. Like I, I was telling that story, which is not funny in our like the way that we're, we talk about if we say those words. That's not funny. And I remember in rehearsal, I was trying so hard to like find the humor in it and find the love in it and find all those things that Christine was trying to walk me through. And I remember in this one run through, there was something about it was the first time I'd ever felt that lovely kind of like that kind of lovely zone that you sometimes find yourself in where you're not thinking about anything. And you're not worried about anything and you're allowing the given circumstances to just carry you along. And Karen was there and she was her lovely, bubbly, you know, life, full of life, Juliet. And I was able to kind of latch onto that within like the light shining on me, the warmth of the stage. I was like living in my clothes. My feet felt fine. (laughs) And all of a sudden, like, we lifted that scene kind of off the page and played it. And it was lovely and charming. And it said everything about their relationship that needed to be said. And I remember some of the faculty member, faculty members who were in the audience, like, laughing. And, like, you know, doing those sort of, you know, expressive noises that come across in a very big theater, which doesn't have many, very many people in it. And I remember walking off the stage like, how did I do that? How did we do that? That was so, it just was the first time I'd ever, I knew I wanted to be an actor, but it was the first time I had ever really felt on stage, like everything fall into place, listening, breathing, living the scene out. So yeah, that, that was a big, that was a big one for me. And I, you know, that show was received with varying degrees of, of love and affection, but I certainly learned something through it and I did love I love the privilege of playing the role. You just made me think about something that I've never thought of before, which is that when there's a small audience of faculty members, the person who directed the play is having Mm -hmm. their own experience of being judged. And (laughs) that must be so nerve wracking for them. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I never thought about that before because I was I was just living in my own self. But like, yeah, they were like our age now. Yeah. And directing a thing and mm-hmm. probably going through all kinds of mechanics and gymnastics in their head about their, their peers watching their work. Definitely. And I could have cared less about their experience. <laughs> <laughs> I know we never thought of them as human beings. We never thought of them like you know, we never thought of them. Of course, we thought of them as human beings, but we didn't see them with all their complexities because we hadn't been there yet. And, you know, it was like all about us and all about like, I don't know. That's a good question, though. Like, what was it about for you? What was it about for you? Like, what was being in a theater school about for you at that time? Like you're in your early 20s. What is it about for you? Do you want to learn the craft? Do you want to be famous? I mean, there was one girl who I went to. She I believe this was my fourth year um, as she stood up in class. We were we were talking with Jim Ostelhoff, if you remember. Oh, yeah. Hostel prof. Yes. (laughs) Ostelhoff, who I learned a good deal from, too. And I look back on him like, oh, he 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 was very canny. That one. Um, But she said, you know, he was in it like, what are you in it for? What are you doing this for? And she said, I want to be famous. She said, I don't want to have to worry about money. I want to live in a big house. I want to have 
a lot of people over. Like she just went through it. And I and I sat there and I thought, well, that's really honest. That's really honest. Like, wow, that takes a lot of balls to to even know what you want at this age with that much ferocity, you know? So um yeah, I mean, but you're absolutely right. Now when I think on it, I'm like, they wanted they were so passionate about it that they tried to impart it to other people. And you know, if we could have, if we could have understood that a little, or if I could have understood that at the time. And I have to say, like, Christine was a lovely human being. And she actually helped me out in a personal situation in a way that was really shocking to me. And like, oh, my God, she's like the sweetest. It, it gave me a glimpse into what you're talking about right there, like on the street, you know, um, a block or two from the theater school when she was very kind to me on a day when I was having a really, really rough time. So, yeah. What are you, so I'm just, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, y- you got a very good role in a very good play. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And yet one of your takeaways fr- from the theater school was that you were shrouded in constant rejection. <laughs> so <laughs> not at the, the, not at the theater school. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, you know what, like, that's a joke. Like, first of all, it's, I'm just making a joke. Like for the amount of, like, if you're a professional, like we're professionals. So you go out there and you put yourself out there and the number of times that you put yourself out there relate, you know, relative to the number of times that you actually get the job. uh, That's a lot of rejection. Like, you don't, Right. So maybe it's like you learned how to cope with rejection from the yeah, theater. Like exactly. or that it wasn't going to be part of the deal. Yeah. 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 Which was it's part of the deal. Isn't it? Don't I mean, you're putting yourself out there. You're putting yourself out there with your like acting work. You're putting yourself out there with your writing work. You're putting a podcast out there. You know, like they're gonna and and no matter what I put myself out there with like my audiobook work and it does not matter how good I know the product is or feel the product is somebody's gonna say this person is terrible this work is terrible I don't even know how they have a job they should be <laughs> taken out in the street <laughs> like yeah. drag, drag behind the horse and buggy right. or something you know and it's just like so that that too is a type of rejection because no matter come on like no matter what you do no matter how you put yourself out there and you put so much of yourself out there when you're acting and when you're auditioning when you're you know doing audio stuff like like I do uh like like all of us do the lion's share of your experience is somebody saying no yeah that's (laughs) that's true well since you brought up audiobooks I'm curious when Mm -hmm. this thing you're talking about before of being in the zone and I know Boz and I both know exactly what you're talking about. We've talked about it on here. And it's this thing that feels mm-hmm. very hard to, you know, it, it, it it's like it's lightning and you either catch it or you don't. But right. does the same thing right. happen with audio books? Oh, sure. Yes. I want to hear yes. about that. Sometimes, well, I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's work, you know, sometimes you're just like, I can't find the thing where is the light switch i'm at i'm still fumbling in the dark with this but then sometimes it, for whatever reason you find that level of comfort within yourself and with the material and your imagination clicks in and all your for me like it is it isn't the default setting but it's definitely 
in audio, it is definitely a little more common than you would than I ever found on stage. And that's just because of the volume of stuff that I do. And also it's like <laughs> sometimes I'm the only judge, you know, I'm like, oh God, that was great. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> Nailed it, you know. And but also like, oh, that fe- this feels right. This feels this feels like the place that you want to be. So yeah, there's definitely that in, in audio. I always wonder when I'm listening, because I do listen to a lot of audiobooks. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always wondering whether the performer is really reading what they're reading um, mm-hmm. or just as we can all do, read something and never understand it. Because some every once in a while, you get a performance where you can tell that they're not reading it, reading it to, for comprehension because they, the most common thing that they do is instead of, instead of saying that they read something they'll say Uh they read something (laughs) (laughs) and you know from how the sentence is written that of course like right (laughs) where's your where's your head yeah and you know so I I just wonder I mean because like you say you have to do such a volume is sometimes does it just feel like you're just getting it out there yeah. Well, yes. And there are times where I'll listen back to something that I've recorded and I literally have no memory of recording that saying that a woman got in touch with me. She's a lovely uh, uh, audiobook narrator. She's like, um, I am listed on this audiobook that you were the, <clears throat> excuse me, you were the main narrator on. And she's, she told me the name of it. I'm like, no, I don't think, uh, no, I don't think that's right. And she's like, oh no, it's you. I'm like, are you? <laughs> I mean, that's very sweet, but I honestly don't remember. I have no memory of recording that book. And and I listened to it on Audible. I'm like, holy crap. I did, record, you. I did record that book. We did record that book. I have no, I have no memory of doing that. Uh, and yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's, I think to your point, like that's normal because if you're, I literally figured it out. Like I figured it up when I I was at Macmillan Publishers and I was recording a title for them and they wanted to do like a little Instagram thing. And they gave me like this thought bubble and wanted me to write something on it and put it next to my head. And they took a picture of it and put it on, <laughs> put it out in the world for everyone to see. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I realized, like, what? I don't know. What should I say? And I was like, oh, I've recorded over a million words. And I was like, holy crap, I've recorded oh, over a million God. words. Right. And your brain, I mean, our brains aren't so big. I mean, a million words. Oh, my God. Right. But, you know, when you think about it, like, think about how much you've talked in your life. Come on now. Oh, you've- a lot. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, right. Too much. Too much. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. What yeah. does the whole yeah. um experience of recording books do, if anything, to your own writing, to your own sense of <clears throat> a lot? That's such a good question. I love this question because when because there is a moment. So I do write. You you both obviously write as well. So when you there is, you can write beautiful words, like you can string together some beautiful words or have great thoughts in your head. But structure of any piece is really sort of the difference between it being a beautiful thing in the abstract and like stepping off the page and becoming some living organism, right? That people can relate to and that you can step inside of and that your imagination is drawn into. And 
so most definitely doing the audiobooks that I've done has taught me a tremendous amount about structure and it and luckily I've done it so much that you know when I can find the time and the space like the psychic space to do my my writing work then I instinctively kind of understand like this this needs to be leading more to this needs to lead here. Some obstacle has to be in place before it can get there. You know what I mean? Like you you can feel that. It's been a huge, like doing audio and reading so many books and books of different in different genres and seeing that the common thread in all of them is a certain kind of structure and a certain arc over between like two now books are like there are some books which are just like 250 like 250 pages but all the way to like 400 pages you can really feel that and you can feel the really well written you know beautiful books they take you there like it's undeniable like you can't not go there with them so it provides a great sort of frame when you're trying to write absolutely which is why pe- people always say, writers always say, read, read, read. You are a writer, read, read. Totally. And I always thought that was total bullshit. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you know, and now after reading, you know, a lot of Stephen King's book, mm-hmm. I read his mem on writing all like once a year. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's true. And just hearing you say that, it's true. Yeah. It's true. The structure is a thing that takes that creates the space for us to take our reader with us yes yes and not let them go and keeps them safe in in a container like a vehicle to go totally and without that they get out the car they get thrown out the car (laughs) yeah i don't want that i don't want my reader to get out no i don't want my reader to be thrown out of the car (laughs) (laughs) no definitely and they're like and it and it does something for your imagination like you because then you start to ask the question that the author wants you to ask right like go like or think that you know the thing that the author is like going to take away from me, like I'm going to pull that rug out from under you later on. You thought you knew, you thought you knew who had done what you thought you understood. And like the, the skill of that is um, as we know, it's not something to take for granted. And it's something that you got to work with. And as you say, the reading, like if the more you read, the more you are absolutely going to understand. You, you, you're go- you're gonna get it in your bones, is maybe right. That, you know what I mean? Like it gets in there, and you're like, I just my gut tells me I'm not. My gut tells you're me you're gonna something. absorb it mm-hmm. like water in the desert with Doctor Bella. <laughs> exactly. To- and the phone rang. I know the phone rang. Great callback. Great callback. <laughs> so I have a question for both of you guys. I yeah. recently had this thought. Gosh. Okay. So one thing I always want to be as a writer, and I never am, is super real clever, like with real clever plot devices and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. The other day I was thinking, gosh, really good film, book, television. Mm -hmm. The cleverness is so turned up. It's so with 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 (laughs) unexpected endings and like never saw Mm -hmm. that coming. Gosh, there's only so far we can go with that, right? Like, is Mm -hmm. the pendulum going to swing in the other direction now of like just very simple? Do you know what I'm getting at? Because it's just like, uh, yeah, how much cleverer can we all be? Right. Good question. I don't really know. What do you think? I mean, Jen, you're kind of out there. You're doing, you're well, getting your pilot I think, together. You're. 
I think that the cleverness for cleverness sake is garbage. And I do think that it stems from what you're both, what you, Gina, you and I have talked about this and Susan, what you're saying is that it stems from a place of true knowing in your bones, the characters and the story you want to tell and the cleverness can come out of that. But I think when it's just cleverness for cleverness sake, you get like a mess. It's a mess. Right. And so I think, but I do also think that on the other, uh, another side of this is that, yes, it's going to swing back to the simple Walt Whitman of it all at some point of like the simplistic sort of, um, I, I think gimmicky and 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 fast and snappy is going to also swing back. I, I do. But also, I would say that having read a lot of your work, that you are probably more clever than you think you are. It's just that you that you write in a different um it's like you have a different kind of oh yeah no i'm clever about just my own feelings about things but not (laughs) writing a story and just i mean even just my son we watched oceans 11 what a Mm -hmm. clever film that is and 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 Mm -hmm. things that you just little things that you didn't see coming i don't know i just that 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 type of writing seems completely inaccessible to me Oh, really? I think that we, we're we headed there. I think it's practice, and it's also 730 drafts right, later. Yeah. Right, right. And, and if I may, I mean, I don't have the experience in writing for television or writing for film. I am working on a pilot with a friend of mine who is a producer, and she has a lot more sort of – and I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm in a writer's group that a lot of women who are writing for the screen. They're writing for films. They're writing episodic. They're writing all of that. Um, so – in in my opinion, there is that, like there is the thing you're talking about where it's like the snappy dialogue and then maybe the clever, like the clever setup. But so much of it comes from immersion in the form and all these influences of other people, like other other professionals, a lot of actors, a lot of writers, at least like with the folks that I've been fortunate enough to sort of develop their screenplay or develop their pilot with. Those people, like they particularly love one actor or they see this actor in this or they see you know they've worked they've workshopped it at a table with these people they've given these people a draft to read those people came back with this it's so collaborative that you really if you can distill and you can find who your characters are and you can take those influences and put them in your character's mouth and put them in your characters like where they're from where like flesh out like like Jen's talking about like flesh out all those details it really seems to me like we forget like we don't have to create all of that by ourselves there is a lot to be said for the influence of the art of others and for the opinions of others who are trying to do what we're trying to do so but i know what you mean i couldn't i, I mean i don't see myself as writing like a caper flick you know like, <laughs> like i don't think i can write like you know an oceans oceans 11 but i could write like this i could write this piece about X thing that I understand really well. And then from there, let the, the experiences of other people I know sort of weigh on it. So 
I, I feel you. There are times where it's like, oh, I'm not as smart as all the other people yeah. who are doing that. Yeah. You know, it's like, but yeah, you are. Well, it's yeah, just, you are, you, know your or, or maybe the truth is always just, yeah, but that's okay. Just do the thing that you're good at doing. Like, right. <laughs> the special go. sauce, the special sauce is your, in your own yeah. bones. There you, you know go. What I mean? So you're yes, writing definitely. a pilot and you're also writing a novel. Mm-hmm. And I am, yes. And I'd love to know about both of those. Well, the pilot I can't say a lot about because I'm writing it with someone else. And so we're not, you know, we're just at the nascent stage of it. But I will say I've never written a pilot before. Um, it's it's incredibly fascinating to try to pull, like being a person who is steeped in like books and a person who is steeped in the theater and the person who is steeped in like play scripts, you know, it's really a different thing to to like pack so much information into a, you know, very short, you know, exchange, like five lines, 30 seconds, one minute, whatever. So, but that's a really, it's a very exciting thing. It has uh, the character who is at the center of that is a woman who is very kind of close to my heart. She's a woman who uh, is dealing with some substance abuse issues and she is kind of trying to get back on top and she's always uh, underestimated. Um, So that loving her as much as I love her, like I kind of like falling in love with her, being able to do that is sort of taking me on the ride with the pilot. And it's interesting to try to write with someone else, you know, and she's in my, my writing partner, she's in Los Angeles. So, you know, figuring out like, who we are, how we work together. Um, it's its really amazing, but it's something that we've been meaning to do for a long time. Um, and then the book, the book is a little, the book is a little bit um, more in my wheelhouse because um, the t- it's about frenemies. It's a, it centers on these two 14 uh, year old frenemies <laughs> in their freshman year of high school. And they're uh, one of them uh, is in speech and debate. And one of them hasn't really found her voice yet. And in order to kind of one up her friend, she decides that she's going to start doing speech and debate. And there we end up with this big like prose poetry rivalry. I love it. These two girls. Um, Anyway, so like writing that has been uh, writing that is something that is very delicious to me. Like when I go back to it and I can sit and I can focus on it. Um, and again, I'm working with the writers group who's given me a lot of wonderful feedback on that. So, and I'm going to illustrate that too, which, you know, I think like, and in what time am I going to do all of this, but somehow it all manages to work out. So I'm, you know, those are the two project. Those are the two creative projects, uh, which are kind of in the forefront of my. Did you Did you have the showcase experience? Were you like, I'm gonna be famous and a big star? <laughs> okay, well that's kind of that's kind of interesting. So, um, so Jane Alderman was the casting director in Chicago, and the the woman who taught audition at the theater school at the time that I was there, and when I applied to the theater school, one of the reasons that I was excited about going was that there was going to be a showcase in New York and a showcase in Chicago and then the showcase in New York. That's I had I wanted to be a stage actress and I wanted to live in New York City. Those were my those were the things I wanted. And so we I got to my fourth year and we were told that we weren't going to New York. We were going to Los Angeles. And 
I was really, really disappointed by that and angry about that because I had banked my whole college experience on being able to take what I had learned and go to New York in like this controlled context and have paid effectively with those years and that energy for time in front of casting directors and agents in New York City. That was, to me, like, that was a huge part of why I chose to, I chose Chicago for a number of reasons, but I, one of the reasons I chose DePaul was because it had that. And I was really not, I was like, look at me, (laughs) look at me. I'm short. I'm round. I'm, you know, believe me, women like me were not all the rage on television and in movies in Los Angeles at the time. The representation has come a long way. I don't have any, you know, like, I'm not talking about the sort of real, like, problems with representation that we have faced that are now being addressed. I'm just talking about, like, skinny blonde, skinny, skinny, brunette, skinny, like everything was that. And that's what I saw. And I was like, I if I go out to Los Angeles, why, it is time and money, because literally money, like my parents didn't help me. I didn't have any help from my from my family. I was doing this with with grants and scholarships and whatever money I made when I was in college. I was like, I literally... I can't see myself paying for this experience knowing that I'm not going to see anything on the other end of it. Now, I might have been wrong about that. I could obviously like I couldn't see myself as other people saw me from a professional standpoint, but I think I had a pretty good idea. And so I decided I'm not going to go. I'm not going to Los Angeles. That's not those are not resources that I can afford to to lay out for something that I don't feel is going to be helpful to me. And so I was called, like, I was, I told Jane Alderman, I'm not going, I'm not going. And she, now Jane was much, was beloved by many people. Um, I had a cordial relationship with her, but I certainly didn't have like a, let's have a heart to heart talk about this. And she was like, well, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? This is the chance of a lifetime. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't feel that for myself. Um, And again, I might have been wrong about that, but that was what I wanted to do at the time. So then I went and I talked to Rick Murphy, like I was called to talk to Jim Ostelhoff and Rick Murphy and all this stuff. And, um, you know, Ostelhoff, when I went into his office, he was, he just listened to me and he was like, you you honestly don't feel like this is a shot for you. I'm like, I, and I said, and I told him everything that I said here. I'm like, I, I plan to go to New York. That's why I, that's one of the reasons I came here. And he's and he was like, "Well, I'm not going to make you go if you if you don't think it's good for you." And he didn't make me go. And so, you know, I did I had the showcase in Chicago. And then I got very lucky when I was cast by Gary Griffin in the show Beautiful Thing because I got to go to New York and be off Broadway. Like we ran in Chicago for a while. It was a huge hit. I mean, it was full of lovely people. Um, and I got lucky again when I moved to New York with the second time after I met my now husband, because David Cromer was moving a production of Orson Shadow there. And the, uh, they, he called me up and had me come in to read for Joan Plowright. And I read for Joan Plowright and he cast me. Oh, oh, 
yeah. Oh so, my God. Yeah. So I got really, I got really, really lucky. Well, and I, lucky yeah. you knew somewhere in your bones that that was your path and you I were able so. to say, I am not going to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I see myself in New York and, and you knew somewhere that that was where you needed to be. Maybe and thank so. God. I do. I think that. It's so poetic, by the way. Thank Moment you. of appreciation for Joan Plowrice. Truly one of the greatest know, actresses right? who ever lived. And and even yeah. though she did find success in film and television, I feel like she mm-hmm. is an example of the kind of person I would have been looking up to. Like, yeah, that's a kind of career that I could see myself having. So it's kind of poetic that that's where right. you ended up. Yeah. That's, that's very beautiful. Well, how did you get House of Blue Leaves? Um, so again, so I had, I I have a relationship, uh, with the director, David Cromer. I did several shows with him over in Chicago and then again, uh, in New York. And so he was, he was doing House of Blue Leaves. This was in 2010. I want to say we, yeah. So it's like we opened in 2011. So, um, so he was doing House of Blue Leaves and the casting was announced for it. So it was Ben Stiller and it was Edie Falco and it was Jennifer Jason Lee. And then so, I, you know, of course, I was kind of like, well, I should pay attention to <laughs> I should pay attention to this. And um, so I I knew the play I had seen. I had seen. I can't remember. I knew I saw like people would do scenes from that at the theater school. Yeah. And. I think I had seen some of like a great performances of it or like a live from Lincoln, some kind of thing from it, which was with Stockard Channing, I want to say, and um, John Mahoney. I may be getting that. I may be getting that wrong. Or Christine Baranski. I can't remember. Like it was I remember vividly like John Mahoney's face and like the final final scene so i went and i read the play and there were these three nun roles in the play there was um uh karina who was like the starlet there was you know the the uh guy that they're way the name is escaping me and there's the guy who they talk about the whole time like he wants you know um already wants to to be able to perform in front of his friend who is now like this this muckety muck in, in uh, film and television in Los Angeles. And so I read the play and I was like, well, obviously like I'm, if I'm going to be in this or like, if I've got a shot, it's going to be one of these three nuns. Right. <laughs> like, so I, I read the play and I had actually prepared like the, I actually prepared myself because I thought if he calls me in, he will call me in for the little nun but then it was announced that Hallie Pfeiffer was playing the little nun. And I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, I guess I, I guess I don't have any shot of this. And then I, and that, of course, calls into all these questions. Like, when you think about what you're going to, like, what you might get and what's actually realistic. And because of my relationship with David, I kind of felt like, well, it's realistic. I might get at least an un- call to understudy or something. So he finally finally was called to audition they for the second nun and the understudy for Jennifer Jason Lee um and which is a fabulous role in which i was like oh my god i i would love to do this but i want to say something here i have really terrible anxiety and i have shook like a um leaf through every audition 
that I've ever done. Okay. Like I didn't know about beta blockers. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I didn't know about like, take a pill. You'll be fine. <laughs> I was like, I would literally for like three days beforehand have to like work myself into the state that I could get into a room and aud- an audition, particularly because I auditioned in for that play in front of David, in front of John Guare, in front of uh, oh. David Capillariotis, who is the casting director for it, who's all three like lovely human beings. I had to go in and like, you know, and I came from work. I'm, I was working in a wig studio at the time, theatrical wig uh, production. I actually make wigs. Yes. I, I do lots and lots of like s- strange side things. Um, and, you know, so I'd been in the wig studio all day. They did my hair for me. They did my makeup for me. This is how like lovely these people were with me. They did my hair and they did my makeup. I managed to dress myself appropriately. And I went in and I shook like a leaf in front of them for the whole audition. And I still was able, by the grace of higher power, and because uh, David Cromer is, oh, David Cromer lifted me up in a lot of ways in my career. Uh, I was able to get that. I was cast in that show. I got the call and was like, oh, I, I can't believe it. <laughs> wow. Like my agent, my agent was really excited. It was like, you know, my agent at the time, and um. You know, it was a great, it was a wonderful thing. And we went into rehearsals. It was a, like Mary Beth Hurt was playing the head nun. Hallie Pfeiffer was the little nun. Susan Bennett's playing the second nun. Wow. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, like you have to remember that every everywhere you go, there you are, right? <laughs> so it, you can imagine it, like imagine it I, I just as a, and this isn't, I wouldn't, I don't want to call this cautionary, but I would say like, always know that you're there to do the work. Like yeah. always know, like, this is a chance to do the work because the work is really the best part of this whole thing. When you look across the stage and there's this wonderful set of eyes looking really back into yours and you're doing something together there's nothing for a person who loves being on stage or loves the theater better than that. You know, like, and I'm not talking about, we're not talking about our personal lives. We're talking about like in your work, when you have those moments where you are like, watch someone do something transformational on stage, whether you're on the stage with them or you're observing them from an audience, like that's really the stuff of it. And that's the beautiful part of it. And so I would say like, yeah, that was it. That was this incredible thing that I was that I was able to accomplish and that I was lucky enough to be in the room for but the time on the stage is the time that I really remember because like for example there was one night where you know Mary Beth she we came through a window the nuns entered their apartment through a window and Mary Beth came through the window and she's supposed to have the first line in our little shtick like we do our our little nun shtick and then we hang out like in their house (laughs) being like the audience on stage right and so she came through the window and she turned she turned up stage and I looked at her and I knew like oh she's either up like she's gone up she or something's going on and so being able to like be there in space with her and then kind of like step out uh, you know away from her and be like I'm going to construct this thing. 
where I'm going to talk and I'm going to look at the audience and I'm going to say my lines and I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to add a little bit and I'm going to bam, 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 bam until Mary Beth is able to turn around and join the scene. And so to be able to like be in front of people on a Broadway stage with other like actors that you've watched, like world according to Garp, tell me Mary Beth Hurd isn't a genius and like world according to Garp. And let me tell you, she's like, she is sort of a unique person. Like her perspective is totally unique. So there I am with her. And like to be kind of in service in that moment to this amazing actress in this play that is like this dreamscape, like you're kind there's this, that, that's such a fabulously oh imaginative gosh. play. Like, you know, those are the moments where you're like, oh, I'm going to remember this for the, I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. Or like when Mary Beth's understudy went on, this lovely actress named Katie Chrysler Black. She, you know, she, she was put in, she was put in like, you know, quickly because I forget the situation, but she had to go on. And we had had understudy rehearsal together. So she was like, you know, what do I, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to be right there with you. I'm going to be right there with you. And I remember like her, she she came, went on the stage. I was in the wing. She came back up. She, she's like, what do I do now? And I knew like what to tell her to do. And that was, that's another moment. Like that's wow. not celebrity. That's like, we're in the wings. We're do we're this, we're like the secondary characters in this play, but we're still on the stage, damn it. And we still had this whole thing going on backstage stage like you know those are the things that i oh. those about that show i mean Love that's it. a totally different thing well i mean oh. it was a, it was a real privilege and and you know i have to say like no greater a privilege in some ways like from an artistic perspective than doing the show at the 50 seat house doing the show yeah. for like there was one day when we I'll, i won't go on for too much longer but there was there was a day that we did beautiful thing we were in this weird gray area before we had been um before we were moving to New York, we didn't know if we were going to go. And it was a Sunday matinee. And there were, the rule was, is that we would do the show if there were as many people in the audience as on the stage. And in order to get the number of people uh, in the audience as on the stage, we asked the guy who was cleaning the theater to come in and watch the show. And so like we did the whole show. That was a comedy, you know, like a, you know, like a heartwarming comedy, um, beautiful thing. And we did, we finished the show and like, you know, there's like four people like clapping. And then the guy who cleans the theater was like, that was all right. And he said that. And and, and that is something that all of us remember to this day. Like that guy was like, that was all right. Oh, I love that. (laughs) What a perfect, what a, we we had a perfect If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.